But I got to tell you, you know, it's really disappointing, right? When I look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm the same old, same old. I'm still that grouchy old whatever, you know? I mean, when you think about it, right? If the Spirit is really working in us and the Word of God is working through us, right? I should be being changed, being healed, right? How disappointing it is if I'm not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Chapel Echo Park here in Los Angeles, California. We are a small fellowship of diverse believers who want to serve our Lord and do His will. You can find out more about our fellowship at ccechopart.com. Join us for our live stream on Sunday in the New Testament and Wednesday evenings in the Old Testament. Now let's get into the Word of God in our weekly podcast. The teaching is from Pastor David Higa and will be the study of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, right there at verse 8 says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas my, was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, I want to talk about a little bit Smyrna. Smyrna is, um, it was a poor, persecuted church, okay? But it was located in a beautiful city of wealth and commercial greatness. And it had a large Jewish population. And that's the reference here in verse 9. They are Jews and they are not these ones that are attacking the church. You know, and so there's a large um, a community of Jewish People are Jewish um, uh, ones there, and they're against the church, okay? So that's kind of a little bit of backdrop of this city or this town, Smyrna. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, I want you to note this verse here. When it says, these things says the first and the last. Who's the first and the last? That's Jesus, right? And so it speaks of his eternality, right? He's eternal. And notice he says, who was dead and came to life. And so we know that Jesus, he's eternal. But we know that he came as a man. He died for the sins of the world, but he came back to life, right? So he has, what, authority over death. 
and authority of our life. Right? He has this great authority. Now, this is important because Smyrna is dealing with the temporal and also with the fear of death. They're being persecuted and they're a very poor church. And so I want you to note this, that Jesus is revealing himself in a way that ministers to them. And so when he says in verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these things says the first and the last. The reason he's revealing himself this way to Smyrna is because he's referencing his eternality. Now why is that important? Because in the life that they had there, they were very poor, abject poverty. I mean, so poor, and that they were being persecuted, some of them killed for their faith. So they had to look at eternity, right? There was nothing in this life. But then also notice that who was dead and came to life, right? And so as they're persecuted, right? And as, if, as, as, as some of them were even, were even killed for their faith, he says that you don't need to fear, need not fear, because he's over death, he's conquered death. And so notice that he says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now notice verse 9, he says, I know. So Jesus knows all things. He knows what you're going through and he ministers to you in those ways. And I want you to know that he's unveiled now. He's not veiled. Notice each of the descriptions here in each of the seven letters, it refers to Jesus unveiled in chapter one, not veiled. So people, it's very important, I believe, to see Jesus unveiled. No longer is Jesus in the Gospels. That's past tense. There's a good reason for it. There are things we want to learn by reading the Gospel. He teaches a lot of doctrine, right? He teaches a lot of things, even on end times. But oftentimes I think we get kind of a, a mental picture of Jesus in the Gospels when he's veiled. He's no longer veiled. And I think that's the importance of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It's letters to the churches, but notice in each of the letters at the beginning, he, he references him unveiled. It says, see me unveiled in this manner and it's going to minister to you. So notice his eternality and right, and he's conquered death. And he says, I know your works, verse 9, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Notice that. He knows their works, right? And he knows their poverty. But he says that you are rich. Now, I want you to also know, we're going to see this in verse 10, it says, do not fear. You know, and I think the two major aspects in this letter to the church in Smyrna is that they've gotten past their fear of death and they've gotten past their fear of poverty. And that's why he commends them. Now, is it easy I got to tell you, it's probably pretty difficult, right, to get past your fear of death and your fear of poverty. But they have, and this is why he commends them. And this is why I think this is such a, a vibrant truth. And he says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you're rich. Why are they rich? Because they have learned to not trust the things of this life, even their own life in this life of faith. They're looking to eternity. And they don't have fear of death, and they don't have fear of poverty. And so therefore, they're rich. Now think about this. If you think about how can you be rich when you're in poverty? Well, you're rich because you're not trusting in the riches of this life. Now I'm thinking about this, some examples. You know, I'm thinking about that first example in my mind about, remember the rich young ruler? 
I have always thought about this until studying this passage. I always thought about the rich young ruler, the reason why he left the Lord is because he had a lot of possessions. Right? He loved his possessions. And that probably is right, but could it be also this, or maybe it is this more. Maybe it's in addition he loved his possessions, but he was fearful of losing his possessions. You ever think about that? Like for me, I'm thinking about this, you know, I'm not so much into loving possessions. I feel like, wow, I have a lot, I have not. But you know what? I do maybe have fear of losing what I have. You understand? See that perspective? Now I want you to hold your hand. I want you to read this account with me. Let's read it from the Gospel of Luke. And I want to just maybe see what you think. Did he not follow Jesus because he loved his possessions? Or he was fearful of losing them by following him? Because i got to tell you people, when you follow Jesus, you can lose all your possessions. Maybe that's why he didn't follow. It's not that he wanted more possessions, but he's fearful of losing. I don't know. Let's read this together. Let's go all the way back to the Gospel of Luke. Let's see if I get the reference here. Luke chapter, um, chapter 18. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. And let's read this together. Luke chapter 18, right at verse 18. All right, Luke records this. Now a certain ruler asked him, asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So this is a good Jewish man. He's in all the law, right? And then when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now, we know what he decided to do, right? In the Gospel of Matthew, he said he went away sorrowful because he had much possessions. But why did he walk away from Jesus and not follow him? Was it because he loved his possessions? wanted to keep them or he feared losing them I mean, that's an interesting question you know I'm starting to think that he had more fear of losing them rather than just keeping and gaining more I thought man I love possessions right I want more possessions but maybe he was fearful of losing them let me ask you this are you fearful of losing your possessions if the Lord asks you hey come follow me say you know just leave your house Leave your friends, leave what you own, leave your car, leave your job. I mean, missionaries do that all the time, right? They go there, right? And they don't have much. They're trusting. They're trusting the Lord. And there are ones that have left. They've left jobs. And so, this whole part about being, being poor, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but he says, but you're rich. Why are they rich? Go back with me to chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 9. They're rich because what? They have the Lord. They trust the Lord. And I know it sounds cliche, but it really is true. When you truly are trusting the Lord, you're not being unwise with the things that the Lord has given you, but you're truly trusting the Lord, you have freedom. You have security. You have strength. And so even if you have nothing in this life, even if you're living from one meal to the next. If you have the Lord, you're rich. You know, 
Jesus kind of mentions this in the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, do not worry what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. For your father knows what you need. And he's going to supply your every need. Now, maybe he's not going to give you what you want. I think that's where we have a big problem, right? I want this, I want this, I want this. Well, maybe the Lord doesn't want you to have that. Maybe he wants to teach you something, right? To trust him. You know, I think that's where we have a problem, especially in this country, right? We think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a United States citizen. I deserve this. I deserve, I deserve this. Well, you go to another country, you're going to find, hey, <laughs> right? You're going to have to trust the Lord. And so I think when it says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. The Lord knows. He's omniscient. He knows what they're going through. And you know what's interesting? I think he knows that they've gotten past that. And this is why he commends them for it. This is why he says you're rich. You've gotten past. You've gotten past material things that, can make you, that, that keep you secure. What's making you and keeping you secure is the Lord. Okay? And so he says, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but our synagogue of Satan. So as I mentioned, in this town, even though this was a poor church, it was a very beautiful city, wealthy city, and it had a great, um, a large population, a large Jewish population. But this Jewish population was really persecuting the church, okay? And so this is a reference to that. He says, they are Jews and are not. But he says that they're not, that they're really not what? Remember how Paul talks about uh, the ones that are Israel, that are truly Israel, the ones that are what? Jews by faith, right? Have faith in, in the Lord. And so, this is just because you're born physically just doesn't make you a Jew, right? That's what Paul is talking about. It's really a spiritual work, right? Those that are faithful to the Lord. And so he says, and they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. His Satan is using them to attack God's, you know, God's church. And so verse 10 says, do not fear. Now, I think this is the key here. Do not fear. You know, when we fear things, but we do a lot of things that are, are wrong, make a lot of bad decisions, we say a lot of bad things, fear, anxiety, right? It's kind of when you squeeze, what comes out of you, right? If you have a lot of fear, you know what's going to come out of you? Things that aren't so good. But if you have the Lord in you and you squeeze, the Lord is going to come out, right? And so he says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. He's saying that, you know, you're going to suffer even more. He says, indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison. You're going to suffer in prison, right? But he says, do not fear. I'm going to be with you. That you may be tested. You see, oftentimes, we know this, right? The Lord allows us to go in these places, allows us to be stripped away of these tangible things. Maybe, maybe the Lord has stripped away your job. Maybe the Lord has stripped away what? Where you live. Maybe the Lord has stripped away... Um, things that you depend on in this life, right? Because he wants you to depend on him. That's the test. But I want you to note this, right? As you kind of get through that test, you become rich. Because you're not dependent on anybody else but the Lord. It's not that you don't minister, you don't have, have fellowship with other people, but you're dependent on the Lord, right? And, and that's a very, very secure place. It's a very liberating place. And so he says, do not fear any of those things, right, which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. There's a lot of good uh, scriptures on being tested, right? The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Proverbs 17, verse 3. I love that verse, right? As you put silver or gold right through the furnace, what happens? 
then impurities come out, right? And they strip off those impurities so that it becomes more pure. That's what the Lord does with testing, right? He puts your heart through the fire, right? And the impurities, the things of self, right? They come up so he can strip them off and so he can, what? Make you more pure so that you can be used by him more powerfully, right? Tested. And you will have tribulation 10 days. What does that mean, tribulation 10 days? Well, some of the commentators believe that it's, a, it's symbolic of a, a short time. Because 10 days is a short time. And that could be the interpretation. When it says 10 days, you know, I just literally say, well, 10 days, 10 days. So there's something that's going to happen to them for 10 days. really going to put them under it. But when you think about it, 10 days is a short time compared to what? Eternity, isn't it? And when you think about this, is this life short compared to eternity? Oh, absolutely. And so I think what he's underscoring is that, you know, this life, even though you're tested and you're persecuted, and maybe somebody would even die for their faith. He says, compared to eternity, it's a very short time. And he says, and if you stand the test, he says, you'll have a crown of life. You see, when we get past the fear of death, God can use us in a radical way. When we get past the fear of poverty, God can use us in a radical way. And this is the sense, right? He's using Smyrna in this radical way. But if you totally say, you know what? I love the Lord more than my own life. Man, he's going to use you radically. And I guess, you know, I'm saying this is really why there's no correction to the persecuted church. They're so poor, they've gotten past possessions. They're just trusting the Lord. And they're so persecuted, right? They just said, Lord, man, if they're going to take me, that's okay. Right? It, they've been tested. And God, God, he commends them for it. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now the second death, speaking of death, it's the eternal death. Okay, so that's a reference to the great white throne judgment. Those that are not of the faith are going to receive an eternal body to be cast into Gehenna forever. So just as we would receive those in the faith, a resurrected body to be with the Lord forever and ever, it's a physical body. There's going to be an eternal body given to those not of the faith to be cast in Gehenna. And so he says, those, right, that live through this life and perhaps even die for the faith, they don't have to worry about the second death. You see, it's a blip on the screen, the 10 days. If that's speaking up a short time of this life, it doesn't compare to eternal life. Right? What you want to avoid or not be a part of is eternal damnation. Okay, so that's kind of what he's underscoring here. All right, so let's look at um, the compromising church in the last 10 minutes here. It says, verse 12, and it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? Now, Pergamos, let me give you some data in Pergamos. It's a, lot, it's a very rich and educated um, uh, city. And so um, I'm going to read you a comment by, uh, by Morris. He says, Pergamos was at the center of a province of Asia, 16 miles north of Smyrna, which we just read about. It was a great religious center with the cult of the emperor as well as the Greek pagan mysteries flourishing there. The great altar of Zeus, one of the seven wonders of the world, was located there. And that was probably when it refers to here, 
Satan's throne in verse 13. It's probably referring to the altar of Zeus. And so you ever take secular history, right? The seven wonders of the world. Remember the Babylonian gardens are one of them, the Egyptian pyramids. Well, this altar to Zeus is one of them, right? And so this was right there in, in Pergamus, right? It says the great altar of Zeus, one of the seven wonders of the world was located there, the largest altar in the world. It was also an intellectual center. It was a place where a lot of medicine was studied, right? With a 200,000 volume library, the word parchment is derived from its name, as well as a medical center with the deity of medicine. Now the deity of medicine is that, kind of like that, that pole with the serpent on. That's who they worship, the deity of medicine. Okay, so it's interesting. Let me, I'm gonna read this from my, um, from my study Bible. It says, in addition, the city was the center of the worship of Asclepius, the god of healing. And that's where we get the word scalpel from. It's a scalpel use in surgery, right? And so notice, how does he reveal himself? He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now this is not the big old sword like in Revelation 19, right? This is more the small sword, the dagger, that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. The Word of God is living and powerful, able to cut between bone and marrow. It's a thought, discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's more of that scalpel. So it's kind of interesting how Jesus reveals himself, right? He reveals himself as the Word of God, but it's that precision of the Word of God. So that we would not be what? Compromised. This is a compromising church. But I want you to know that it's a very, very educated place. They study medicine. There's a lot of pagan religions. Kind of sounds a little bit like our own society here in the U.S., right? We put our faith in medicine. We put our faith in all these other pagan things, right? Education too, right? And so we forget to what? To trust the Lord. And so we kind of mix it up, right? We come to church. We trust the Lord. But then we trust our intellect, right? We trust the way the world does things, right? And so this is how we become compromised. So you can see just kind of how Jesus reveals himself, right? He reveals himself as the precise word of God because there's so much compromise in this city, right? So he says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This would be, I think, Zeus's um, a deity there, as I mentioned, one of the seven wonders of the world. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Now, Antipas was a martyr, probably one of the first martyrs in that area, okay, that they're referring to. But I want you to note this. It says, you hold fast to my name. So the church is being faithful to some extent, but it's starting to compromise. And so we can see how that applies to even the church today. You know, there's many churches, especially in this nation, right? They're reading their Bibles, right? They're studying their Bibles, but they're starting to be compromised as well. What do they compromise with? With the things of the world. It could be education. It could be what the world worships, right? And so there's that compromising effect. And so how do you get past the compromising effect? Well, it's through the Word of God. The Word kind of just carves out. Right? Discerns between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Actually, let me read Hebrews 4.12 to you. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It's not just on the outside, it's on the inside. What's your motivation? What's your intent? The Word of God discerns that, right? And that's why he reveals himself. He says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword because they're prone to compromise, right? Verse 13 again, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And so what is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, it's connected to sexual immorality. Now, Balaam, who's Balaam? Remember when Balaam, he was riding that donkey and the donkey began to speak to him? Remember that? So that's how you probably remember. Balaam was a false prophet. And Balaam was a false prophet. He was hired by Balak, right? And Balak was the, uh, the leader of Moab there. And so what, what's happening is, remember the time when, when uh, Moses is leading the people in the wilderness and he's leading them uh, right east of the Jordan there to go into the promised land? The older generation has pretty much almost passed away, right? And so he's bringing them up east of the Jordan to enter them in. But what happens is there's so many people that are going through the land of Moab. And so Balak doesn't want him to do that. It's a threat to them. So he hires Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the people. Now, they're God's people, so God doesn't let them. But really, that's what Balak wants. And so rather than a curse, Balaam pronounces a blessing. He has to, right? He has to do what the Lord says. So Balak gets really mad. So Balak doesn't pay him. He's not going to pay him for something he can do. And so what does Balaam do? He's a very smart man. He says, well, if I can't pronounce a curse upon them, if we can't get them from the outside, we're going to get them from the inside. I'm going to have the Moabite women seduce them. So they'll self-destruct. And so that's what he did. He got the Moabite women. They seduced the men of Israel. And they began to join with them sexually, immorally, physically. And when you join to them physically, you join to them spiritually. They began to worship what? Their gods even had these orgies and stuff. And that was that uh, plague at Peor there. And that's when that final, right, number of that older generation perished. And then the newer generation went into the land. It's kind of interesting when you read that account. It's, book, it's in the book of Numbers there. You can begin to read that uh, in the book of Numbers right around chapters 22 through 24. But that's the doctrine of Balaam. Basically, the doctrine of Balaam is this. It's, it's to be unequally yoked, right? And also to be doing things for, for money, for pay. And, and when you think about it, that's where we compromise often, right? We compromise with our relationships and we compromise with our money. We're controlled by our money. And so what Smyrna was successful at, you know, they were just in abject poverty, they were past money, right? The ones in Pergamos, it would seem that they had. And as they have money, right, they begin to depend on the money. And they begin to what? To compromise, compromise in their heart, right? And so there is this doctrine of Balaam, it kind of leads to sexual immorality, and it leads to doing things to compromise your faith.
And so Balaam, right, he was sold out for money. He seduced the Israelites for money, and so finally he got paid. He's doing ministry for pay. Right? And he's also polluting, right? Through sexual immorality and joining to idols. Okay, so that's the doctrine of Balaam. This is how they become compromised. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We looked at that last week. Now, the church in Ephesus, right? They identified them. He says, hey, I commend you for this church in Ephesus. You hate the Nicolaitans like I do. Well, it would seem that these ones embrace it. And so there's this aspect of controlling the people. Now, we looked at what the Nicolaitans were. We don't have a whole lot of data on them, but remember I kind of referred to Wal, but he kind of looks at the name. Nicol means what? To control or to be over. And Laetans is where we get laity, to control the people. Remember we kind of said, well, that, if that's the meaning, right? We can see maybe where things like the cults, they try to control the people. And so this was an aspect of them too, that they tolerated this, controlling people. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did, right? They controlled the people. Right? And so it says, I hate that. It says, you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I think I hate. Now he says, repent, verse 16, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice he reveals himself in Revelation 1, right? The sword coming out of his mouth. And this is the specific way he reveals himself to this church. Why? Because they're compromising. And it's the Word of God, the precision of the Word of God, upon your heart, not just upon your outsides, right? Upon your heart that keeps us from compromising. Thanks again for joining us in our podcast of Calvary Chapel, Echo Park. We hope and pray that you have been blessed by the teaching and join us again as we continue to study the Word of God. Once again, you can always visit us on our homepage at ccechopart.com for more information and teachings from Pastor David. To God be the glory.